My buddy Jimmy and I went to the wrestling matches last week, and we saw an older woman sitting ringside holding what looked like a newborn baby. And Jimmy nudged me and said, Otis, that's a monkey. I said, no way. So uh, I got up closer, and I could see it actually was an organ grinder monkey. It was wrapped up in a baby blanket. And she saw me looking at it, and she turned around and stared at me all dead-faced and expressionless for a while. And then I asked her real nice if I could snap a picture of the monkey. And that must have pissed her off because her eyes got all bugged out and she turned around and looked me dead in the eye. And she just looked completely crazed when she said, no one photographs the magnificent Marty. friends this is otis gibbs and you're listening to thanks for giving a damn i'm sitting here in my living room in east nashville tennessee on a very very cold winter day and if you listen close you can probably hear the freezing rain hitting the windows this is a personal journal this is a bit of an experiment i like to say right up front that i haven't the slightest idea what i'm doing but i decided to do it anyway this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Tim Jones. Tim is a singer-songwriter who plays in a band called Truth and Salvage Company. It's a really, really good rock and roll band. Tim's originally from Indianapolis, Indiana, and he lived out in Los Angeles for quite a while. And his band just recently relocated to Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Tim at truthandsalvageco.com. I've been buddies with Tim for almost 20 years now. And we spent a lot of time together playing gigs back in Indianapolis way back in the day. And then he moved out to Los Angeles and I'd see him every now and then on the road. But he recently relocated his band, Truth and Salvage Company, here to Nashville, Tennessee. And it's been really, really nice getting to see him a lot more often. He's a really positive guy and just a really fun guy to be around. And we all need that in our lives. Tim came over to my house and we hung out for a little bit. And I asked him if he would sit down and record a little chat. And he shared a lot of really good stuff. A lot of really fun stories that I think you guys are going to enjoy. So here's Tim Jones. Well, actually, I did get to meet Levon Helm too, who is an, an, an actor, and God rest his soul. Right? He was he was really gracious, and we were on uh, on on tour with the Black Crows, and and Levon Helm was doing did two shows with us as well in in Boston and in New York, and um, Chris Robinson had is really great friends with with Levon, and they had just spent a whole month recording their record up at his cabin in in Woodstock, and. Um, so he got Levon to, to watch us play and, you know, Smitty, our drummer sings as, as well. And, but he was off to the side of the stage. So Smitty could never see that Levon was like over there, like just rocking away, like during our whole set, you know, then, and that was a great sight. Cause I, right through my sightline, I could see Smitty and I could see Levon, like, you know, and they were both like in time with the beat together. And that was a really, really cool thing. And, and 
so he invited us up to come check out the studio when we were doing a radio thing up for the radio station there and so we went by and and he was busy doing doing some some stuff and so we went and like fished in his in his pond and walker caught a fish and uh justin uh, is a is an old old friend the studio manager up there and and then finally he was done and he came out and he was like Oh, you boys like the like the cereal? Y'all, you catch them and fish. Well, you just put it in a pan and fry them on up. And once you get up here, you all really be sounding good. Like he thought it was already set up that we were like coming there to record, but we just wanted to hang out and meet him. But he was just so kind and and sweet, and like he like smiled and you know would give like the old man wink, and it just uh, he he made us feel so good. On the converse, we our whole band when when garth hudson um when the band had got their lifetime achievement award um my friend uh mike brown was really good friends with them and and they were throwing a party for 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 them afterwards levon refused to accept the award because robbie um was was there as well and he uh so so we we were backing up garth for this for this uh party afterwards and we had rehearsed uh shape i'm in and the weight and um I shall be released, I think, and and so we had played the shape I'm in, and 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 it was great. And I had played before with with Garth, and he's a little bit, you know, crotchety, and his very talented guy. But I mean, his his hands you cannot follow at all where his hands are going or what key that he's playing in. And and so we we had you know uh, played the the weight as it is on the record in in A, and but I hear Garth he's he's starting it and doing the intro, and I I can hell it seems lower and so joe carnes was playing bass for us that night and he's like super genius musician i was like what what key do you, is, are we in the are we, we're supposed to do it in a right and he's like i think he's playing it in g and so i lean over to 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 gar like i'm standing in front of him i was like God, what what key are we doing this in and he just looks up and he has this big brim hat he looks up and he goes g motherfucker <laughs> 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 he was so he was so pissed, <laughs> and for, and like I was so rattled, and I was supposed to you know sing the first line. I was just like oh, but it, it ended up it ended up being great. You know, it was but, uh, we were we were hubbing out of the Newark uh, airport because we were doing like Philly and. Um, uh, Boston and and New York and it was like instead of us uh, we had like three shows in New York you know for like label stuff and instead of us like going and staying in different towns we just stayed at the New York airport for four nights and we went in there one night after you know we got in at like three o'clock in the morning and and the bar was still open there because I think the bar stays open like around the clock at this at this Holiday Inn that we were staying at and uh, and the and. Razor Ramon was was there and was was drinking kind of a lot and then you know we we were hanging out and the bartender was like yeah he's he's been here since like eight o'clock this morning and he was like yeah I missed my flight earlier I gotta wait until tomorrow for another flight and he was I mean he was big and sweaty and and I had said something to upset him and I don't remember what it was but you know I think I was talking about some other wrestlers that I used to like or something and that I maybe had like didn't know him well enough but the other guys like walker who was from georgia knew him really well so i think he just must have lived in a different region of wrestling than than i knew uh but he ended up putting me into a headlock and like fully choking me out 
to the point of where I was like turning blue in the face and like had to, had to like <laughs> tap him. And he, I don't, I don't think he would have let up. You know, I, I would definitely not want to get into a, a bar brawl with Razor Ramon, aka Scott Hall. <laughs> You're out there. It's Tim Jones, Truth and Salvage coming. <laughs> Our manager was like, "You." He was like, "You guys want to see a rock and roll band? I'll take you. I'll get special permission from the bar owners at the patio so that you guys can come in." He's like, "But don't take a step towards that bar because you know we we had gotten in trouble when we played at like the JC Bistro and like the Avenue that we would always like fill up McDonald's cups with beer even though we were sixteen to seventeen years old and strange to be playing in bars anyways i always felt like a real big shot you know and people would be like what do you do i was like oh you know we had football practice or you know babysat and i was like what do you do i was like oh i was you know i was playing at this bar last night you know i had to finish my math homework <laughs> uh, <laughs> um but so he he took us in and and there was this incredible band and these guys all decked out in suits and there was this main guy with a big nice long beard and and had this amazing hat with a giant feather coming out in like a three-piece suit rocking this incredible looking les paul and the band just sounded amazing um and i was like damn for once i really thought that our high school manager was right because i was like this is the and that was otis's band and and i think i you know afterwards i was like oh incredible i think that we we met then and then I, I just remember we were always like in Broderpool and we'd be standing out in the, on the corner, you know, and there was like all the straight edge kids and we would just shoot the shit for, for hours and, you know, on Friday night. And yeah, those were good times, man. You must've been drunk if you thought that we were, uh, we were that good. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, I was strictly forbidden that night to, to even taste any, any alcohol because if we had gotten caught in there, you know, the owners could lose their license and then our manager would have not been able to book his other bands there and blah, blah, blah. So that was one underage drinking night that didn't didn't take place. I, think. I remember I remember there was an 80s night at the patio and you guys were playing and I was playing and um, I didn't know who you guys were, but you guys were, you know, young and exciting and good. And I remember my buddy Scott Quinn was standing next to me, rest in peace. And uh, he was just losing his mind. You guys were playing Mellencamp stuff. <laughs> it was very uncool to like my circle to like Mellencamp. Yeah. Everybody liked Mellencamp, but yeah. no one would admit it. It was very uncool. You know, I was covering Rick Springfield that night, <laughs> something really cool, you know. Yeah. But uh, I remember we're sitting there watching you guys, and my buddy Scott was, uh, he's like, oh my God. They're playing Mellencamp, and they mean it. And it, we kind of turned our heads inside out because you guys were ten times cooler than any of us, and you liked Mellencamp. <laughs> well, we uh, that was that was the the band that formed after uh, Planet Earth. Me and and the guitar player from from Planet Earth, uh, Carl Bramel. Um, we start we started a band called Old Pike, and and. Yeah, I think we we did. Uh, Everyone needs a hand to hold on to. That was like one of uh, it was like our our Mellencamp cover, and and my my freshman year at IU. So it must that must have been after ninety because that band didn't start until like ninety five or so. So it must have been after after that. But my freshman year, Mike Wanchik came and talked. Mike Wanchik is the rhythm guitar player and 
one of the only still original members of, of John Cougar Mellencamp's band that's been with him since like 76. Incredible, amazing, uh, uh, great dude. And, and I think an awesome guitar player and great producer. Um, but he came in and spoke at, uh, uh, the history of rock and roll class that, that Glenn gas, uh, teaches at IU. He was actually the first one to start a, a, a history of rock and roll class at like a, you know, a legitimate college. And now they're spread, you know, he, he ended up writing a book that's now kind of the curriculum for, um, a, a lot of the schools around the country, but he had Mike Wanchik in and, and Wanchik just talked all about, you know, from the beginning of, of Mellencamp and how they ended up getting signed and the management deals and the three different record deals that they had. And, you know, it was like an, an hour and a half of just the crash course in like Indiana music history. And, it blew my mind and you know i was uh the, from that was like if if i didn't already want to be a musician like incredibly bad at that point i was like it seemed even more kind of like legitimate where i was like this guy's speaking at my college class like i can pursue this in in like almost if i follow his footsteps like i can do what what he's done and he was probably you know my age now at the at the time um and we ended up becoming, you know, great, great friends and would hang out socially as, as well as professionally and and was really kind of a, a mentor towards uh, me and Carl and, and Mike Flynn and um, JB and all the guys that were in Old Pike. Well, Old Pike's one of those strange instances where everyone from that band, I mean, it's your high school band, but everyone from the band went on to do really cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, in for, for in in the high school, it was me, JB, and 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 Carl, and then Ed, uh, the the drummer, who's now yeah, he's a really successful tour manager and does Coheed and Cambria and at the Drive-In and and a ton of people. Um, and Mike uh, Flynn, we we met in in college at, at IU, um, and he is now yeah the vice president of A and R for Epic Records and produced The Fray and Augustana and Howie Day and. Um, Anna Nalik and a ton of other ton of other artists and Carl is 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 in My Morning Jacket and has been in in that band for five or six years now and Jason Brammer is an incredible artist in in Chicago and I mean world renowned but definitely in, in Chicago and Pat Spurgeon our our second drummer um, he, he plays with uh, Rogue Wave and um, a bunch of other projects kind of in in the Bay Area and Eric Hopper the first drummer is a successful filmmaker and. So we it was you know for for a bunch of you know uh, kids from from Indiana it was, it's pretty cool to see kind of the the where everybody has branched out to at, at this point we certainly thought you know we were that important unfortunately <laughs> 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 nobody else really thought that we were as, as important in, until I guess maybe later but the thing is we, we were playing Mellencamp maybe more seriously than probably even Mellencamp played play himself <laughs> <laughs> which is hard to do like we, we were I mean we always we love to have fun but I think that was probably the biggest like curse for for old Pike is that we I, I think I always just kind of wanted to be taken more seriously and like always wanted to be older ever since I was a kid and now I'm like I just wish I could be taken a little less seriously or, or at least I try and take myself less less seriously and you got to play the Ryman I remember seeing that listed somewhere and uh, I might have even emailed you or texted you about it but 
just like proud as hell. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a, a, a highlight in in recent memory. And and it was funny when I first moved uh, here to to Nashville, and I was I was having to go to, to physical therapy for for this uh, hip surgery that I had had. And you know all these these women. There was like a, you know a ton of these older women that were that were in there, and they're all like exercising and stuff. And like, what's your band called? And everybody's like, oh, well, we never we never heard of that. And it was like, well, we played the Ryman, and everybody was like, you played the Ryman. And then suddenly I was you know I was somebody <laughs> you know and, <laughs> at physical therapy. Um, but that was uh, the the Black Crows took us out on on that whole tour. Chris Robinson had had produced um, our our record in January of um, of o, of oh nine, in and then we went out with him in um, August of of oh nine all the way through through December, um, and then did some more recording. And then the record came out the next year, but. Yeah, it was really, really cool to do that, and and um, my dad brought my my grandparents down from from Kentucky, who my grandpa had had given me um, my uh, uh, first Hank Williams record. On he's like, I never liked the way this guy sang. You know, you you you, you have this, <laughs> which was kind of a big deal for him, I think, to give away. Like you know, he uh, as a postman, they weren't used to like giving away a lot of the things that they had accumulated over time, but. He didn't. He was done with his Hank Williams record, so he gave it to me, and I was only fifteen or so, and and that was, you know, that was a, a profound uh, thing to put that on and be like, what, where is this? Where is this guy from? You know, and what what world is is this that he lives in? Um, and my parents uh, or my dad, my mom was out of the country, but my dad picked up uh, Granny and Granddaddy from Kentucky and brought him down and. Uh, I like gave him a little tour of you know the Ryman and, and stuff, and we had Hank Williams' dressing room, which is apparently this uh, Ryman guide told me the other day they nobody actually had dressing rooms back then. But <laughs> I was I was like, oh great, thanks for ruining this fantasy that I had for three years that I was in Hank Williams' dressing room. Um, but it was really cool for them, and 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 apparently my cousins were there too, and apparently my granny was like, you know. We got a triple standing ovation that night, and and uh, and and she was so excited. And because the last time that my grandpa had had seen us play, we were, we we played I think the the Buzzkirk Chumley or in in uh, Bloomington, and they were shooting this uh, like uh, 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 TV show for the for the local affiliate there WTIU I think it was, and. And people were more than welcome to come, but it was in the middle of the afternoon, and 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 there was only like you know a hundred people in this theater that holds a, a thousand. And and I remember afterwards, my grandpa was just like, "Well, you got a, you got a whole lot of fans here, don't you?" And like just like because he always thought that you know, and still I think in a way thinks that playing music is not really like a legitimate career. That that I've always had it easy, and yeah. that unless you unless you're doing something that you hate. <laughs> You're yeah. not really working. I just saw this video somebody had posted last night of, of Father John Misty, and I really liked it. And and I think he shot this video in this this house that some friends of mine all used to live in, and it really made me miss Los Angeles because there's you know. I moved there in in 2001, um, right when Old Pike had had broken up, and I literally thought that everybody 
that there would be like a publishing deal or more record labels like just waiting for me to come. Like I'd drive out there and I'd call up a couple people and they'd sign me up and I'd have some more money in the bank and make more records and it would, you know. And uh, and when I got there and I played a couple of shows and I realized that a I wasn't really a very good solo performer because I had never done it before, you know. Carl and I, even if we did like like acoustic shows or whatever, it was always like Carl and I. And Carl could make anybody sound good because he was so like his his musicianship and his um, harmony and everything else is is just so incredible that he he could he makes everybody sound great. Um, and so once I think that kind of whole uh, um, wisteria or whatever that that I had uh, blew over, then the reality of that there was a ton of other people who all had just moved to Los Angeles who were just like me and had either lost a record deal or were you know engaged in some sort of record deal or or whatever else and. And beyond that, there was just people moving there every day who were the most talented people in their small city or town who had outgrown it and who wanted to come to Los Angeles. So that it was really a, a, the first year and a half was such like a, a, a soul searching place. We ended up uh, uh, having a, um, a copyright infringement lawsuit against this band train and that settled out of court. So then I had money in the bank living in Los Angeles with like the doors wide open of, of everything, which was a great and, and wonderful time, but really kind of ended up being a pretty dark period, you know, for, for a couple of years. Then I found this place, the, the hotel cafe that, um, I was working as a bar back at, uh, at this place, the sky bar, which our A and R guy, when we were, when old Pike was on Epic would always stay at, at this fancy hotel, the Mondrian. And the Sky Bar was part of this hotel there. And so just like a year previous, I had been drinking there on our A&R guy's tab, which as it turns out was actually our, our own tab, um, you know, and living it up. And then a year later, then I'm carrying ice buckets. You know, this is before we had, we had, we had gotten the settlement. And the night that, that Train won a Grammy for like Song of the Year, I was there at like the Warner Brothers Grammy party, like carrying buckets of ice. And that was definitely like a, real like dark you know place and in 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 my mind but then um so I, uh finally like making my way through like trying to find just in in bloomington even as as kind of despair at the scene was where there was a lot of people who were like pissed that that old pike had gotten a record deal and that i don't know there was you know in all kinds of college scenes there's like this competitive thing or at least there was in the in the 90s or late 90s and um so in the competition i think was was pretty heavy and a lot of it's like you had to bring 25 people to your show in la or there was a good chance you weren't going to get booked again at this club and to get 25 people to come out is pretty hard you know when it when it comes down to it um but then i met all these people at the at the at the hotel cafe and and started um hanging out there and, and Gary Jules was this guy who was just doing Tuesday nights. They didn't even have a liquor license or anything. It was a coffee shop and you would bring in your own beer and they would give you like a bucket of ice and you could put your, your beer in it. And the owner Marco became a great friend of mine. I ended up working the door there 
which I don't even think I played a show until after I had worked the door there for like a year because even with all the stuff I had done, there were still so many other people that were much better than I was. Like, I'm just not that interesting to watch me play, you know, guitar on my own. And I couldn't play piano at the time either. And um, so it was really just from then on, from like 2002, 2003, when I first met those guys, I just kind of went headlong into a crash course of being at the hotel cafe five or six nights a week and watching four or five different songwriters, you know, people from all cal, you know, calibers. It was really kind of an, an undiscovered place at, at that point. You know, it was Carrie Brothers and Alexi Murdoch and Jim Bianco and, and uh, you know, a, a, ton, a ton of Ian Ball from, from Gomez and um, a, a long list of, of, of other people that were kind of like the, the Catherine Feeney and um, that were kind of like the original founders. And then, of course, it branched out into a ton of other people until in 2006 they got a liquor license. And then it was like the place to come and, and play. And, you know, Pete Townsend was coming and, Tom Morello would do every Tuesday night there. And, um, you know, I saw Ray LaMontagne's first show there. And Adele was, you know, every everybody is, has played there. And David Gray and and Lucinda Williams. You know, any anybody that, that you could name, I've, I've pretty much seen come through that door. And that was like, those are all, all my friends. And, and then we started a, a tour together and we went around and, and, and they took this, you know, it was Carrie Brothers' idea. Carrie Brothers was kind of the first, like, I was doing work in the door and stuff, but Carrie was like, do you think that you could play bass for me? And so then that really, like, kind of brought me more into the fold. We went and did South by Southwest together, which I think we were hanging out together down there at that South by Southwest. Um, and it was really, like, it felt good because it was such, it was a family, you know? The Hotel Cafe gang, that was really, like, to 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 be able to find that thing and I started booking Sunday nights there so I had my own night for like two years where Mark was just like do do whatever you want you know because and and put whatever music that that you would and and I would you know I made a dollar ahead off of everybody that came in so if I booked somebody that was really great and people came you know I booked Tony Joe White one one Sunday and and you know 80 people came in for it I was like yes I was there for that one yeah that was great we we had a great time, and that was how I kind of ended up meeting all the guys from from Truth and Salvage Company because they were doing a similar thing on Wednesday night at this club called Cranes um, with uh, with a girl uh, named Lissy, who's a super incredible singer songwriter who'd moved from from uh, Davenport, Iowa, um, or Rock Island, Illinois. I guess they're kind of like both right across the river from each other. And she had just moved to to Hollywood in like 2005, and had started playing on this Wednesday night. And then um, Walker and Scotty and Smitty had all moved from from Asheville, North Carolina, right around the same time. And they met in this neighborhood in Beechwood Canyon. And she was like, "Well, you guys be my backup band." This is all you know, unbeknownst to me. And I was at the hotel cafe one night, and um, this guy Kevin Williamson was like, "Hey, you should stick around and and see this this girl next, Lizzie. She's really incredible." And Kevin had signed Jewel and The Cult and um, Sugar Ray and a bunch of other people and, and was working at, at Maverick Records and, and had signed her. So I was like, well, I guess I should stay and see. And the guy who wrote the Coke theme song was there and he was wearing all white. I can't think of what his name is. Uh, he also did the Alanis Morissette, uh, that big record. 
I stayed and watched them, and I really loved the band. The the drummer I thought was hitting like Kenny Arnoff, and I hadn't seen they had this camaraderie, you know, because most of the people that you see even at the hotel cafe, it was like the singer songwriter, and then like four other musicians who probably didn't know each other that well, but who were super competent and very great and will get on stage and make the singer songwriter sound perfect. But these guys didn't necessarily make the singer songwriter sound perfect, but they looked like they were having a really good time and they looked like that they knew each other and it was fun. It was a band. And I was like, I want to play with those guys. And, uh, and so I met Lissy afterwards and she was like, you should come on Wednesday to my night at, at cranes. And, and, um, and, and so I did. And then we started all hanging out and we started a band called the denim family band. And we wrote songs about jeans and, corduroy and, and and we you know and covered the mamas and the papas and you know uh uh grand parsons and it was it was that was like that was when music really became fun for me again and that was like 2006 2007 whereas all up until that time it had really kind of been about like career 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 and finally i had i'd given up I didn't really think that I would play music. I would still play, you know, do like, you know, one night, but I was booking Sunday nights at the hotel cafe. I had started a record label. I was producing other, other people's stuff. And I'd kind of given up on, on the dream of like being a performer. Um, and I was okay with that. And, 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 and it, and it felt okay. Uh, and then as soon as I did, then like, playing music with everybody else that was around became really fun again. A point that I hadn't had since being in Old Pike when we would like sit around and we would write songs together and it would be like, this is fun, right? Like I'm giving you an idea and you're giving me an idea instead of me just being like yeah. showing somebody how to play one of my songs and then doing it just to perform them, you know? Yeah. So that it was, that was really liberated. And I think that's what people saw. And there was, I, I think it was happening a ton in, in Los Angeles at, at the time, going back to that Father John Misty video that I saw, because there was this party scene, and it was just like uh, this friend of mine, Jonathan Wilson, used to have these these parties every Wednesday night at his place up in Laurel Canyon, which is this amazing house right up on, on top of, of of the hill, like, you know, just up from, from the market. And Laurel Canyon just has like a really special, it just smells good up there, and, and it's kind of as, as much as you're in Los Angeles, suddenly you're like in this other magical world and i mean there's houses like everywhere but at the same time there still feels like you can breathe and there's and there's space and you know every chris robinson was there like the first time that i went even though you know we i wouldn't even really meet him for another year after that and you know the jackson brown and like there's a perfect mixture of like old school people and 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 new school people and i i took my friend jack tension up there who wrote you know, already gone and peacefully on a lot of the songs for the Eagles. And we had become really good friends from the hotel cafe too. And he was like, he was like, I, I just can't believe he was like, I, I feel stupid being like, this is exactly how it was before. And now it is again, but this is how it was before. And now it is again. And like, this is, <laughs> this is really cool. You know, he's like, you don't understand how cool this is for me to, to see again, you know, to be involved in this. And everything felt right. It was like, you know, then there was like the summer of, of 2008 and that was, really kind of the, the, I think the peak of the magical moment of, of, of that, of that place for me. And then we, we, and then a, a, a friend of ours, uh, Frankie Perez saw us play as the Denim family band and was like, I really think that if you guys 
took this seriously and you know you you all took your best songs between Scotty, Kennebrew, me, Walker Young and um Smitty Bill, Smitty Smith, uh you all took like your three best songs, you would have like a perfect album. And he was like, I can get you a manager and a record deal. And we hadn't even even really thought about it like that. We just knew that we were having a super good time, which I think that's the most innocent way is when somebody else is finally like, hey, why don't you guys do this? You know, so that 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 felt good. And that's exactly what happened. We we went and we practiced for six months. We didn't play any shows and we practiced five nights a week and and worked on each other's songs together. And um, and that was it was fun. Harry Dean Stanton uh, is a is a really good friend of my friend Foster Timms, this this artist who who I actually just produced a, a record for, and um, he would he would come to Foster's shows and and we'd all get up and play, and he loves to like get up and play these Spanish songs just like he does in Cool Hand Luke, like uh, and he loves to party and he will stay up later than anybody. We we played his 85th birthday. He's from Kentucky as well, and, and so we, you know, we we played uh, um, uh, my old Kentucky home and like uh, the uh, Randy Newman's version of it. And he was just like he'd get up and holler and 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 was like, "You can't Foster, you can't hear the lyrics. We can't hear the goddamn lyrics, Foster." And he's just as he's just as crotchety as can be. And I mean, I probably met him a million times. He still doesn't know who I am. Well, Foster says he knows who I am, but I don't think he knows who I am. Um, I mean, there's a million, you know, m- movie star star stories. Like uh, that was the, probably the most surreal thing when we 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 uh, backed up Foster for Harry Dean Stanton's eighty uh, fifth birthday party. Uh, it was also Jesse the Body Ventura's sixtieth birthday party. Back to some wrestling. And he was super cool. He got up and sang Lawyers, Guns, and Money with us, which was his inauguration song, apparently, as the governor <laughs> of Minnesota. And uh, and at one point in time, it was him and Harry Dean and uh, Ron Jeremy was also there and was playing harmonica. And then he just broke out into a harmonica solo of When the Saints Go Marching In that lasted, I kid you not, about seven minutes long. And we all left. I, I left the stage because it was not. It was not. It was not stopping, and and the whole place just became like it was. The, it was one of those. Whenever I have really weird dreams, and I and I, and it all just like as weird as it gets. You still, I think it's so real. Like my dreams are always so real. And then there's that one point when you're like, wait a second, this cannot. This this must be a dream. This is, this is so. This is too weird. This is not happening. It was just like that. It was like that, but it was not. I was not waking up, and it was. It was just the weirdest, like plastic surgery people all over. And <laughs> I mean, when when I was when I was a a bar back at the Sky Bar, Liza Minnelli and uh, her other whoever that that gay man was that she married um, had their uh, engagement party at the sky bar and like Larry King was the host and uh, Michael Jackson was supposed to show up and play, but I think Lionel Richie ended up showing up and playing instead. And Rodney Dangerfield was, it was like Anna Nicole Smith and like every weird, Oh, like fringe 
you know, movie star from the past or the present was there at this party. And, and, you know, I was just trying to, there was, there's a, a ton of, there's, I got a lot of, a lot of good stories. Of, Did you get close to Rodney Dangerfield at all? Or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I got him a drink and he was, he was, da- he, he was either married or engaged or, or was dating this woman who, you know, couldn't have been more than 30 years old. And his eyes were so bugged out, and he was—I mean, he died no more than this was two thousand and one, two thousand two maybe. And so he—he he passed on shortly, shortly thereafter. I'm pretty sure, but and she was like, you know, she was—it was like, and she was like an escort, you know. And and I don't know, kind of it was, it was, it was, it was, it was sort of sad because you're like, oh my god, there's Rodney Dangerfield, but then he was just kind of like, looked like he was had no idea where he even was, you know. It was like supposed to show up at this crazy party and and in a way you think how they're kind of like you must live when you're that that sort of a a celebrity you can't really go anywhere in the world without being recognized and then at some point you know there must be some kind of disconnect i think completely with reality where that like who are you you know who are you anymore i'm you this person that's always been in the movies because that's what everybody recognizes you as and and you can't really go even out to the grocery store and not be like, oh my God, there's the guy from Caddyshack, you know, or, or, you know, even Harry Dean Stanton, because people are like, they may not, you just know, you know him, but you don't know who it is, you know, like, and, um, there's still like, you know, that was, that was a weird thing about being in, in Los Angeles is that you would see people all the time, and then, you know, and be like, well, how do I know you? And, and, uh, I guess it it happened to Scotty here because we were playing cornhole with with Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, and Scotty kept being like, "How do I how do I know you?" And and he didn't realize until we got home that it was Gillian Welch. He was like, "It was like, oh my god, I feel like such an idiot." He was like, "I I met her before, and I just but I I, I she must have thought that I was like trying to mess with her." I, I miss Los Angeles, and and I miss kind of that, um, miss the 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 way that people are. There's always just some like somebody that's like on the cusp of 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 something. Like well, a really good friend of mine, uh, Scoot McNary, who's um, I met you know right at the same time when I met all the other guys in the band in 2006, and. He was just doing commercials and stuff, and now this last year he's just in in that movie Promised Land with Matt Damon. He was just in Killing Them Softly with Brad Pitt, and he had a huge role in in Argo. That movie. So he's had three huge movies, and to watch kind of like the struggles that 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 he's had in in that town, and and now he just bought you know like himself some land in in Texas, and um, I think that actors like have it, you know, the 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 roughest there. So as being a musician, it's always kind of been a little easier. It's like the pressure's off, you know, as a as a, as a musician because <laughs> I do not have to go to like an audition in the morning and have somebody just be like, nope, nope, just because of the way you look, you know, like that 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 would be that to me. I think is is really un- unnerving. Um, but it, you know, it, it is it's it's fun to to see people that that you admire and and even that you don't admire, but that you know that you know you know. You know I was there one one night with uh, Shooter when I met Shooter Shooter Jennings and um, 
I mean, he's married to Drea De Matteo, and they're friends with Winona Ryder, and and so they that she came, and then there was like just this huge paparazzi buzz because I think it was not long after she had gotten convicted of the shoplifting thing, and and so the the we all wanted to go to the Burgundy Room, which is this other bar next to the Hotel Cafe, and so I had to like run interference, you know, with with Drea and Shooter. They ran interference so that I could take Winona around the other side to go into the Burgundy Room, and then we were, you know, I was trying to just like talk to her, you know, like, and um, uh, the Shooter and I had known each other through through Bobby Bear Jr., but um, and I was talking to her. I was like, yeah, well, you should check out, you know, my music on online and stuff, you know, because I, I know that she likes music a lot, and she was like, oh, I don't, I don't have a computer. And I was, and I, I was just like, "Well, what do you, what do you say to that?" You know, <laughs> I was like, "Well, does your assistant, does your assistant maybe have a computer? Could you get her to look it up?" Um, but you, every, you know, all and all those people, everybody's just a, you know, it's like anybody else. They just want, you know, the human. I mean, I, I still have a have a have a dream of, um, you know, getting my master's degree and 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 teaching um, history or music history or rock and roll history or, you know, some sort of something that I'm qualified to teach, which isn't very many things. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, and Bloomington is one of those places where like I could go back, you know, in a in a, in a heartbeat and really i think and enjoy myself i think you have to take a step away from it you know but living there for for seven years that's there's very few places i think as many places as as i've been and especially in the last three years going to some of the same towns over and over again you there's pretty much the same towns that i got a good feeling in the first time you know like i would live there again and um well, the Dalai Lama's brother lives in Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. And has for a long, long time. He could live wherever he wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> and Cougar lives in <laughs> <laughs> and he can live wherever he wants. But he's I mean, he's got a sweet spot right there on Lake Monroe, too. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a beautiful place. I think us uh, you know, there's something about us Hoosiers. We're not maybe as uh, gracious and as mannerly as people from the South. And we're certainly not as uh, arrogant or as um, uh, can't think of another another good adjective about people from the north. But we, I think maybe hopefully we got a little bit of the best of both. I appreciate you coming over and uh, hanging out. Thank you, thank you for having me. I appreciate you you talking and having such a great voice to listen to. Oh Lord, hopefully uh, people will continue listening. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in. I'd like to thank Tim Jones for coming over and hanging out in my living room and recording a conversation. You can find out everything you need to know about Tim at truthandsalvageco.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. 
You can buy one of my fine art photographic prints. They look beautiful and they'd look even better in your living room. You could buy one of Amy's CDs. You could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Just leave us a comment. It'll take you just a few seconds. Just write down which was your favorite episode. You don't even have to put a description. Just put the name of the episode in there. And it'll go a long way towards helping us move up in the search rankings and help a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.